Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Only dead people are allowed to have statues, but I have been given one while still alive. Already I am petrified. I thanked Aunt Vidala with as much modesty as I could summon, then pulled the rope that released the cloth drape shrouding me. It billowed to the ground, and there I stood. We don't do cheering here at Ardua Hall, but there was some discreet clapping. My statue is larger than life, as statues tend to be. I am standing straight, shoulders back, my eyes fixed on some cosmic point of reference understood to represent my idealism, my unflinching commitment to duty. Clutching my left hand is a girl gazing up at me with trusting eyes. My right hand rests on the head of a woman crouched at my side, her hair veiled, her eyes upturned in an expression that could be read as either craven or grateful one of our handmaids, and behind me is one of my pearl girls, ready to set out on her missionary work. Hanging from a belt around my waist is my taser. At the unveiling, the sculptress was nervous. Was her rendition of me sufficiently flattering? Did I approve of it? I toyed with the idea of frowning as the sheet came off, but thought better of it. I am not without compassion. Very lifelike, I said. That was nine years ago. Since then, my statue has weathered. Pigeons have decorated me. Moss has sprouted in my damper crevices. Votaries have taken to leaving offerings at my feet. Eggs for fertility, oranges to suggest the fullness of pregnancy. I pocket the oranges. Oranges are so refreshing. I write these words in my private sanctum within the library of Ardua Hall, one of the few libraries remaining after the enthusiastic book burnings that have been going on across our land. The corrupt and blood-smeared fingerprints of the past must be wiped away to create a clean space for the morally pure generation that is surely about to arrive. Such is the theory. But among these bloody fingerprints are those made by ourselves, and these can't be wiped away so easily. Over the years, I've buried a lot of bones. Now, I'm inclined to dig them up again. That's enough inscribing for today. I'll stash this screed in its hiding place, avoiding the surveillance cameras. I know where they are, having placed them myself. I'm aware of the risk I'm running. Writing can be dangerous. There are several within Ardua Hall who would love to get their hands on these pages. Wait, I counsel them silently. It will get worse. You have asked me to tell you what it was like for me when I was growing up within Gilead. I imagine you expect nothing but horrors. But the reality is that many children were loved and cherished, in Gilead as elsewhere, and many adults were kind though fallible, in Gilead as elsewhere. At our school, P. 
Pink was for spring and summer. Plum was for fall and winter. White was for special days, Sundays and celebrations. Arms covered, hair covered, skirts down to the knee before you were five, and no more than two inches above the ankle after that. Because the urges of men were terrible things. We were snares and enticements, despite ourselves. We were the innocent and blameless causes that through our very nature could make men drunk with lust, so that they'd stagger and lurch and topple over the verge and go plunging down in flames. We were precious flowers that had to be kept safely inside glass houses, or else we would be ambushed and our petals would be torn off and our treasure would be stolen and we would be ripped apart and trampled by the ravenous men. That was the kind of thing Aunt Vidala would tell us at school. But Aunt Este would say Aunt Vidala was overdoing it. All men are not like that, girls, she would say soothingly. Not that she would know anything about it. Since the ants were not married, they were not allowed to be. That was why they could have writing and books. Despite Aunt Este, it was Aunt Vidala's version that prevailed. It turned up in my nightmares, the shattering of the glass house and the trampling of hooves with pink and white and plum fragments of myself scattered over the ground. I had no faith in the wise choices of the ants. I feared that I would end up married to a goat on fire. The pink, the white, and the plum dresses were the rule for special girls like us. Ordinary girls from Econo families wore the same thing all the time, those ugly, multicolored stripes and gray cloaks. They were not pre-chosen to be married to the very best men, not like us, although they might get to be chosen once they were older, if they were pretty enough. And though I was not especially pretty, I had a dough face like the cookies my favorite Martha, Zilla, made for me as a treat, with raisin eyes, I was very, very chosen. Doubly chosen. Not only pre-chosen to marry a commander, but chosen in the first place by Tabitha, who was my mother. I went for a walk in the forest, she would say, and then I came to an enchanted castle, and there were a lot of little girls locked inside, and none of them had any mothers. I had a magic ring, but I could only rescue one little girl. Aren't we both lucky that I chose you? I would be nestled close to her, my head against her thin body. What could I say but, yes, I was lucky. We had a dollhouse that was like our own house. We had a mother doll in the blue dress of the commander's wives, a little girl doll, three Martha dolls with aprons, a guardian of the faith with a cap to drive the car, two angels to stand at the gate with their miniature plastic guns, and a father doll in his crisp commander's uniform. He never said much, but he sat at the end of the dining table. Then he would go into his study and close the door. In this, the commander doll was like my own father, Commander Kyle, who would ask if I had been good and then vanish. Going into my father's study was forbidden. What my father was doing in there was said to be very important. 
the important things that men did. Too important for females to meddle with, because they had smaller brains that were incapable of thinking large thoughts. In the dollhouse box set, there was a handmade doll with a red dress and a bulgy tummy and a white hat that hid her face, though my mother said we didn't need a handmaid in our house because we already had me. And I was happy to put the handmaid away in a box because the real handmaids made me nervous. We would pass them on our school outings, to parks where we might look at ducks in a pond, Later, we would be allowed to go to salvagings and pravagansas in our white dresses and veils to see people being hanged or married. There were swings in one of the parks, but only boys could taste that freedom. Only they could swoop and soar. Only they could be airborne. My name at that time was Agnes Jemima. When I wasn't at school or with my mother, I liked to be in the kitchen watching the Marthas make the bread and soups and stews. All the Marthas were known as Martha, because that's what they were. But each one of them had a first name, too. Ours were Vera, Rosa, and Zilla. Zilla was my favorite. Can I make the bread from scratch? I asked one day, when Zilla was getting out the bowl to start mixing. You don't need to bother with that, said Rosa, scowling more than usual. Why? I said. Vera laughed her harsh laugh. You'll have Martha's to do all of that for you, she said, once they've picked out a nice fat husband for you. He won't be fat. I didn't want a fat husband. It's just an expression, said Zilla. You won't have to do the shopping either, said Rosa. Your Martha will do that, or else a handmaid. She may not need one, said Vera, considering who her mother... What about my mother? Just that your mother could have had her own baby, said Zilla soothingly. So I'm sure you can too. You'd like to have a baby, wouldn't you, dear? Yes, but I don't want a husband. I think they're disgusting. The three of them laughed. Not all of them, said Zilla. Your father is a husband. They'll make sure it's a nice one, said Rosa. They have their pride to keep up, said Vera. They won't marry you down. But what if I want to make the bread? Well, your Marthas would have to let you do that, said Zilla. But they'd look down on you for it. We can always do what we want, even you. And sometimes we have to do what we hate, said Vera. Even you. You're being mean, I said and I ran out of the kitchen. Although I'd been told not to disturb my mother, I crept upstairs and into her room. I don't want to get married, I sobbed. Why do I have to? She hugged me tight. Whatever happens, she said after a while, I want you to always remember that I have loved you very much. My mother was dying. Everyone knew except me. I found out from Shunammite, who said she was my best friend. We weren't supposed to have best friends. Shunammite's house had just one Martha, and mine had three, so my father was more important than hers. I realize now that this was why she wanted me as her best friend. She had two long, thick braids that I envied. Your mother's 
dying, isn't she? Shunamite whispered to me one lunchtime. No, she's not. She just has a condition. That was what the Marthas called it. Your mother's condition. She really is dying, Shunamite whispered. I heard it from my Martha, and your Martha told her, so it's true. Which one? I said. How should I know which one? They're all just Marthas, said Shunamite, tossing her long, thick braids. That afternoon I went into the kitchen. Shunamite said one of you told her Martha that my mother is dying. I blurted out. It's a lie. All three of them stopped what they were doing. We thought you knew, Zilla said gently. We're very sorry, said Rosa. Your mother is a good woman. A model wife, said Vera. She has endured her suffering without complaint. I was slumped over at the kitchen table, crying into my hands. We must all bear the afflictions that are sent to test us, said Zilla. My mother died two nights later. I was angry with her for being mortally ill and not telling me, though she had told me in a way. She had prayed for her pain to be over soon, and her prayer was answered. Readying myself for bed last night, I unpinned my hair, what is left of it. In one of my bracing homilies to our aunts some years ago, I preached against vanity, which creeps in despite our strictures against it. Life is not about hair, I said then, which is true, but it is also true that hair is about life. It is the flame of the body's candle, and as it dwindles, the body shrinks and melts away. Now my hair is like our meals here at Ardua Hall, sparse and short. The flame of my life is subsiding. I regarded my reflection. My face betrays no signs of weakness. It retains its leathery texture, its character-bestowing mole on the chin, its etching of familiar lines. I was once handsome, that can no longer be said. Imposing is the best that might be ventured. How will I end, I wondered. Will I live to a gently neglected old age, ossifying by degrees? Or will the regime and I both topple, and my stone replica along with me, to be dragged away and sold off as a curiosity, a lawn ornament, a chunk of gruesome kitsch? Or will I be put on trial as a monster, then executed by firing squad and dangled from a lamppost for public viewing? Right now, I still have some choice in the matter. Not whether to die, but when and how. Oh, and who to take down with me. I have made my list. In my own present day, I am a legend. I'm a framed head that hangs at the backs of classrooms, grimly smiling, silently admonishing. I'm a bugaboo used by the Marthas to frighten small children. If you don't behave yourself, 
Aunt Lydia will come and get you. I'm also a model of moral perfection to be emulated. What would Aunt Lydia want you to do? I've become swollen with power, true, but also nebulous with it, formless, shape-shifting. I am everywhere and nowhere. Even in the minds of the commanders, I cast an unsettling shadow. Today was the first full moon after March 21st. The aunts and supplicants assembled in the refectory for supper, and before our meager feast began, I led the special spring equinox grace, and I added to it a blessing for baby Nicole. And bless baby Nicole, stolen away by her treacherous handmaid mother and hidden by the godless in Canada. May our baby Nicole be restored to us, we pray. May grace return her. So useful, baby Nicole. She whips up the faithful. She inspires hatred against our enemies. In my hands, should she end up there, baby Nicole would have a brilliant future. They say I will always have the scar, but I'm almost better. So yes, I think I'm strong enough to tell you how I got involved in this whole story. I'll start just before my birthday, or what I used to believe was my birthday. I was supposed to be turning 16. That birthday was the day that I discovered that I was a fraud. Neil and Melanie were my parents. They ran a store called The Clothes Hound. It was basically used clothing. Melanie called it previously loved because she said used meant exploited. Neil handled what they called the money end. I was in the clothes hound quite a lot on Saturdays and Sundays because Melanie didn't want me to be in our house by myself. There was an older person who was always in and out of the store. She usually had on a black leather jacket and heavy boots. She came in through the back door to pick up clothes for charity. Ada didn't look to me like the charitable type. The other people who came into the clothes hound without buying anything were the young women in long silvery dresses and white hats who called themselves Pearl Girls and said they were missionaries doing God's work for Gilead. They always appeared in twos, they had white pearl necklaces and smiled a lot, but not real smiling. They would offer Melanie their printed brochures with pictures of happy children and sunrises and titles that were supposed to lure you to Gilead. There was always at least one brochure about baby Nicole. We'd been shown a documentary about her at school. Her mother was a handmaid and she'd smuggled baby Nicole out of Gilead. Baby Nicole's father was a top-brass, super-nasty Gilead commander, so there had been a huge uproar, and Gilead had demanded her return. Canada had dragged its feet and then caved in, but by that time, Baby Nicole had disappeared and had never been found. Every time the Pearl Girls came, Melanie would accept the brochures and promise to keep a pile of them at point of sale. Sometimes she would even give some of the old brochures back to them. "'Why don't you tell them they're evil?' I asked her when I was 14 and taking a greater interest in politics. We'd had three modules in school on Gilead. 
It was a terrible, terrible place where women couldn't have jobs or drive cars and where the handmaids were forced to get pregnant like cows. Except that cows had a better deal. There's no point arguing with them, Daisy, said Melanie. They're fanatics. Then I'll tell them. No, said Melanie quite sharply. I don't want you talking to them. Why not? They try to con girls your age into going to Gilead with them. They'll appeal to your idealism. I would never fall for that. Of course not, said Melanie. But just leave them alone. If I take the brochures, they go away. Are their pearls real? Fake, said Melanie. Everything about them is fake. I'm not proud of how I behaved. Looking back, I realize how dumb it was. A week before my birthday, there was going to be a protest march about Gilead. Footage of a new batch of executions had been broadcast on the news. Women being hanged for heresy and apostasy. The two oldest grades in our school had been given time off so we could go to the protest. We made signs. No trade with Gilead. Justice for Gilead women. I was excited because it would be my first ever protest march. But then Neil and Melanie said I couldn't go. Why not, I said. You're always saying how we should defend our principles. Maybe she could go, said Melanie. If we ask Ada to go with her. Are you hallucinating, Neil said to Melanie. That thing will be crawling with press. It'll be on the news. The whole idea is to be on the news, I said. Melanie put her hands over her ears. Neil is right. No. I'm saying no. Fine. Lock me up, I said. I stomped off to my room. Outside of school, I led a constricted life. Since Neil and Melanie were so jumpy, my social life was pretty much a zero. It consisted entirely of things I would be allowed to do when I was older. This time, though, I was going to that protest march no matter what. So I switched identity cards with a member of my basketball team and made it onto the bus. The protest march was thrilling at first. People made speeches and held up signs. Down with Gilead fascists. Sanctuary now. Right then, some countermarchers turned up with different signs. Among them was a group of those Pearl Girls with signs saying, Give back baby Nicole. Scuffles broke out. People surged this way and that, screaming and shouting. This way, said a gravelly voice behind me. It was Ada. She grabbed me and dragged me behind her. I saw myself on the news that night. I was holding up a sign and shouting. I thought Neil and Melanie would be furious with me. Instead, they were anxious. Why did you do that, said Neil. You always said a person should stand up against injustice, I said. I knew I'd crossed a line, but I wasn't about to apologize. What's our next move? said Melanie. Not to me, but to Neil. There's no fallback ready, said Neil. Three days later, there was a break-in at the clothes hound. They didn't find any money, but they trashed Neil's office. His files were scattered over the floor. They got the camera, Neil was saying to Melanie as I was coming into the kitchen. What camera, I said. Oh, just an old camera, Neil said. A rare one, though. From then on, 
Neil and Melanie got more and more jittery. The night after the break-in, I found Melanie and Neil watching TV intently. A parole girl identified only as Aunt Adriana had been found dead in a condo that she and her parole girl's companion had rented. The police said it was a suicide. There was a picture of the dead parole girl. I remembered she'd been in the clothes hound recently, handing out brochures. So had her partner, identified as Aunt Sally, who was nowhere to be found. The poor girl, said Neil to Melanie. Why, I said. The Pearl Girls work for Gilead. They hate us. Everyone knows that. I was baffled. Why should they care? The really bad thing happened on my birthday. I got up, I put on my school uniform, and headed downstairs to the kitchen. Morning, I said. Oh, Daisy, Melanie said. Happy birthday. Sweet 16. Melanie drove me, as usual, as she didn't like me going to school by myself on the bus. Tonight, we'll have your birthday cake. With ice cream? She said, her voice rising at the end as if it was a question. I'll pick you up after school. There are some things Neil and I want to tell you, now that you're old enough. Okay, I said. I thought this was going to be about boys and what consent meant. It was bound to be awkward. I wanted to say I was sorry for having gone to the protest march. But then we were at the school and I hadn't said it. Then it was the afternoon. The air was stale. The clock slowed down. Finally, the time was up and I could go home. I scanned the street. Melanie wasn't waiting in her car. All of a sudden, Ada appeared beside me, in her black leather jacket. It's about Neil and Melanie. I looked at her face, and I could tell. Something really bad must have happened. There's been an explosion. It was a car bomb. Outside the clothes hound. Shit! Is the store wrecked? It was Melanie's car. She and Neil were both in it. I sat there for a minute without speaking. I couldn't make sense of this. What kind of maniac would want to kill Neil and Melanie? So, they're dead? I said finally. I was shivering. I tried to picture the explosion, but all I could see was a blank. Yesterday, I received an unexpected invitation to a private meeting with Commander Judd. He has risen in the world since I first knew him. Straightening out Gilead's women offered little real scope for his ego, but as the commander in charge of the eyes, he is now universally feared. Aunt Lydia, he said from behind his enormous desk, you are well, I hope? He did not hope that, but I let it pass. Praise be, I said. And you, and your wife. His wives have a habit of dying. Commander Judd is a great believer 
in the restorative powers of young women. After each respectable period of mourning, he has let it be known to me that he is in the market for another child bride. I and my wife are both well, thanks be, he said. I have wonderful news for you. Please sit down. I did so. Our agents in Canada have succeeded in identifying and eliminating two of the most active Mayday operatives. Their cover was a used clothing store in a seedy area of Toronto. Providence has blessed us, I said. Your Pearl Girls pointed the way. The Pearl Girls were originally my idea. Other religions had missionaries, so why not ours? And other missionaries had produced converts, so why not ours? And other missionaries had gathered information used in espionage, so why not ours? But being no fool, I'd let Commander Judd take credit for the plan. My Pearl Girls initiative came at a crucial moment for him, just as the folly of his national homelands fiasco was becoming undeniable. The genocide charges levied by international human rights organizations had become an embarrassment. The flow of refugee homelanders from North Dakota across the Canadian border was an unstoppable flood, and Judd's ridiculous Certificate of Whiteness scheme had collapsed in a welter of forgeries and bribery. The launch of the Pearl Girls saved his bacon. Right then, Commander Judd was all smiles. Indeed, they are pearls of great price. There is something that has been puzzling me, however. Those two Mayday terrorists must have had a counterpart here in Gilead informing the underground female road which routes are watched which are likely to be clear. Who in Gilead would be so treacherous? I asked. We're working on it, he said. There's one other thing, he said. Aunt Adriana, the pearl girl found dead in Toronto. Yes, devastating, I said. Is there any further information? We're expecting an update from the consulate, he said. You know you can count on me. In so many ways, dear Aunt Lydia, he said. Your price is above rubies, praise be. I like a compliment as well as anyone. Thank you, I said. My life might have been very different if only I'd packed up early enough, as some did, and left the country. In that vanished country of mine, things had been on a downward spiral for years. The floods, the fires, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the droughts, the water shortages, the earthquakes— the decaying infrastructure. Why hadn't someone decommissioned those atomic reactors before it was too late? The tanking economy, the joblessness, the falling birth rate. People became frightened. Then they became angry. The absence of viable remedies. The search for someone to blame. Why did I think it would nonetheless be business as usual? My arrest came shortly after the Sons of Jacob attack that liquidated Congress. Initially, we were told it was Islamic terrorists, 
a national emergency was declared. Despite that, some of us had gone into work. The main door was kicked in. Five men, wearing camouflage gear, entered, submachine guns at the ready. One of them, the leader, I suppose, said to his companion, Got the list? I felt cold. Was this a robbery? A hostage-taking? What do you want? We don't keep any money here. Anita nudged me with her elbow to get me to keep quiet. The second-in-command held up a sheet of paper. Box store or stadium for these two here? Stadium, said the leader. One of them's overage. They've both got law degrees. They're lady judges. You heard the orders. For my mother's funeral, I was given a black dress. There was a closed coffin with the earthy husk of my mother inside it, and my father made a short speech about what a fine wife she had been. There was a small reception at our house. Most of the guests ignored me, except for one of the wives, whose name was Paula. She was a widow, and somewhat famous because her husband, Commander Saunders, had been killed in his study by their handmaid, using a kitchen skewer, a scandal that had been much whispered about at school the year before. Paula's version was that the girl was insane, and when poor Commander Saunders had opened his study door, she had taken him by surprise. The handmaid had run away, but they'd caught her and hanged her, and displayed her on the wall. The other version was Shunammites, via her Martha. It involved violent urges and a sinful connection. When her husband hadn't turned up for breakfast, Paula had gone looking for him and had discovered him lying on the floor without his trousers. Paula had put the trousers back on him before calling the angels. Shunammite said the Martha said that Paula had got a lot of blood on herself while wrestling the clothes onto the dead body. I thought about it at the funeral reception when my father was introducing me to Paula. She gave me a measuring look. Then she said, Agnes Jemima, how lovely, and patted me on the head. I pictured her kneeling on the floor in a pool of blood, trying to put a pair of trousers on a dead man. Several months after my mother's death, my father married the widow Paula. On her finger appeared my mother's magic ring. Not long after the wedding of Paula and my father, our household received a handmaid. Her name was of Kyle, since my father's name was Commander Kyle. Her name would have been something else earlier, said Shunammite. Some other man's. They get passed around until they have a baby. They're all sluts anyway. They don't need real names. What the arrival of this handmaid meant was that my new stepmother, Paula, wanted to have a baby, because she did not count me as her child. But what about Commander Kyle? I didn't seem to count as a child for him, either. When the handmaid entered our household, I was almost of womanly age, as Gilead counted. I was taller. My face was longer in shape. My hair had thickened and changed from a mousy brown to chestnut. More alarmingly, my breasts were swelling and I had begun to sprout hair on areas of my body that we were not supposed to dwell on, legs, 
armpits, and the shameful part of many elusive names. Soon I could expect blood to come out from between my legs. Why couldn't God have arranged it otherwise? But he had a special interest in blood, which we knew about from scripture verses that had been read out to us. Blood, purification, more blood, more purification. Blood shed to purify the impure, though you weren't supposed to get it on your hands. My effervescent body was not my only worry. My status at school had become noticeably lower. Girls would break off their conversations as I approached. Whenever there was a secret to tell, especially a shocking one, Shunamite loved to be the messenger. Guess what I found out, she said one day while we were eating our lunchtime sandwiches outdoors. What? Your mother wasn't your real mother, said Shunamite. They took you away from your real mother because she was a slut. But don't worry, it's not your fault because you were too young to know that. My stomach clenched. That's not true. Calm down, said Shunamite. Like I said, it's not your fault. I don't believe you. Shunamite gave me a pitying, relishing smile. It's the truth. My Martha heard the whole story from your Martha, and she heard it from your new stepmother. I really hated her at that moment. Then... Where's my real mother? I demanded. If you know everything. She was stealing you from Gilead, Shunamite said. She was trying to run away through a forest, but they caught up with her and rescued you. Who did? I asked faintly. You know, them. The angels and eyes. They gave you to Tabitha because she couldn't have a baby. I felt belief creeping up through my body like a paralysis. The story Tabitha used to tell about rescuing me and running away from the evil witches, it was partly true. But it hadn't been Tabitha's hand I'd been holding. It had been the hand of my real mother, the slut. No wonder Paula and Commander Kyle wanted a handmaid. They wanted a real child instead of me. I was nobody's child. When I got home that day, I cornered Zilla in the kitchen, where she was making biscuits, and repeated everything that Shunamite had told me. Your friend has a big mouth, was what she said. But is it true? She sighed. How do you like to help me make the biscuits? But I was too old to be bribed with simple gifts like that. Just tell me. Well, according to your new stepmother, yes. That story is true. So, Tabitha wasn't my mother. What happened to my other mother, the one who was running through the forest? I don't truly know, said Zilla, not looking at me. Did they shoot her? Did they kill her? Oh, no. They wouldn't have done that. Why? Because she could have babies. They would never kill a valuable woman like that unless they really couldn't help it. She paused to let this sink in. Most likely, the ants at the Rachel and Leia Center would talk to her at first, to see if it was possible to change her mind about things. There were rumors about the Rachel and Leia Center at school. And what if they couldn't change her mind? Oh, I'm sure they changed her mind, 
said Zilla. Hearts and minds. They change them. Where is she now, then? None of us know that, dear. Once they become handmaids, they don't have their old names anymore. She's a handmaid. It was true, then, what Shunamite had said. My mother. That's what they do over at the center, said Zilla. They make them into handmaids, one way or another. The ones they catch. Now, how about a nice hot biscuit? My mother was a handmaid. From the moment I was told about my real mother, our new handmaid fascinated me. I'd ignored her when she'd first come, as instructed. It was bad for them to form attachments. I turned away from off Kyle and had pretended not to notice her when she'd glide into the kitchen in her red dress to pick up the shopping basket and then go for her walk. The handmaids all went for a walk every day, two by two. Nobody bothered them or spoke to them or touched them, because they were, in a sense, untouchable. But now I gazed at Ofkyle from the sides of my eyes at every chance I got. She had a pale, oval face, blank, like a gloved thumbprint. I knew how to make a blank face myself, so I didn't believe she was really blank underneath. She'd had a whole other life. What did she look like when she'd been a slut? How many men had she gone with? Had she allowed parts of her body to stick out of her clothing? How daring! Finally, our handmaid managed to get pregnant. I knew this before I was told, because instead of treating her as if she were a stray dog they were putting up with out of pity, the Marthas began fussing over her and placing flowers and little vases on her breakfast trays. As for Paula, my stepmother, she was glowing. Off Kyle's pregnant, isn't she? I asked Zilla one morning. I tried to be casual about it in case I was wrong. We aren't supposed to say anything about it, said Zilla, until after the third month. Why? I said. Because if it's an unbaby, that's when it might get born too early, and it would die. I knew about unbabies. They were whispered about. My friend Becca's handmaid had given birth to a baby girl. It didn't have a brain. Poor Becca had been very upset because she'd wanted a sister. We're praying for it. For her, Zilla had said then. I'd noticed the it. My status at school suddenly shot upwards again. A coming baby shed luster on everyone connected with it. It was as if a golden haze had enveloped our house and the haze got brighter and more golden as time passed. When the three-month mark was reached, there was an unofficial party in the kitchen, and Zilla made a cake. As for of Kyle, her expression was not so much joyful as relieved. I myself was a dark cloud. This unknown baby inside of Kyle was taking up all the love. Even the Marthas were turning away from me, towards the light shining out of of Kyle's belly. It was at this time that an event took place that was shameful. When a shameful thing is done to you, the shamefulness rubs off on you. You feel dirtied. I needed to go to the dentist for my yearly checkup. 
The dentist was Becca's father, and his name was Dr. Grove. He was the best dentist, said Vera. All the top commanders and their families went to him. His office was in the Blessings of Health building. One of the Marthas always used to go with me to the dentist and sit in the waiting room, as it was more proper that way. But Paula said the guardian could just drive me there, since there was too much work to be done in the house, considering the changes that had to be prepared for. I found the right floor and the right door, and when it was my turn I went into the inner room, as the assistant, Mr. William, asked me to do. Dr. Grove poked round in my mouth with his picks and probes and his little mirror, as usual. As usual, I saw his eyes up close, magnified by his glasses, blue and bloodshot, with elephant-knee eyelids. He snapped off his white sanitary gloves and washed his hands at the sink, which was behind my back. He said, Perfect teeth. Perfect. Then he said, You're getting to be a big girl, Agnes. Then he put his hand on my small but growing breast. I froze, in shock. So it was all true then about men and their rampaging, fiery urges, and merely by sitting in the dentist's chair, I was the cause. I was horribly embarrassed, so I simply pretended it wasn't happening. Dr. Grove was standing behind me, so I couldn't see the rest of him, only his hand, which was large and had reddish hairs on the back. It sat there on my breast like a large, hot crab, then the hand squeezed my breast. The fingers found my nipple and pinched. It was like having a thumbtack stuck into me. I needed to get out of that dentist chair as fast as I could, but the hand was locking me in. Suddenly it lifted, and then some of the rest of Dr. Grove moved into sight. About time you saw one of these, he said in his normal voice. You'll have one of them inside you soon enough. He took hold of my right hand and positioned it on this part of himself. I don't think I need to tell you what happened next. He had a towel. He wiped himself off and tucked his appendage back into his trousers. There, he said. Good girl. I didn't hurt you. He gave me a fatherly pat on the shoulder. Don't forget to brush twice a day and floss afterwards. I walked out of the room. Mr. William was in the waiting room, his face impassive. Any cavities? No, I said. Are you all right? Yes, I said. You look pale. Some people have a fear of dentists. Was that a smirk? I found the door handle and blundered out. I couldn't say I didn't want to go back to Dr. Grove without saying why, and if I said why, I knew I would be in trouble. Also, what would it do to my friend Becca if I said that about her father? She would be devastated. I don't want any dinner, I said to Zilla in the kitchen. She gave me a sharp glance. Are you ill? I just need to lie down. Zilla brought me a hot drink up to my room on a tray. I should have gone with you, she said. She knew, or she suspected. 
Did Paula know too? Is that why she sent me by myself? She'd wanted me to be defiled. After that, I stopped praying for forgiveness about the hatred I felt towards her. Ofkyle, our handmaid, got bigger and bigger, or her stomach did. She was now quite a celebrity. Paula threw numerous tea parties for the other wives. She would order off Kyle to appear in the living room so the wives could exclaim over her and make a fuss. Then they would ask Paula what she was going to name her baby. Her baby. Not off Kyle's baby. I saw off Kyle trying to keep her face as still as marble, but she didn't always succeed. Her face was rounder than it had been when she'd first arrived. It was almost swollen and it seemed to me that this was because of all the tears she was not allowing herself to cry. At last, the birthday came. I was home from school because I'd finally got my first period. I was huddled in my bed, feeling sorry for myself, when I heard the birthmobile siren coming along our street. I went to the window. Yes, the red van was inside our gates now, and the handmaids were climbing down out of it, a dozen of them or more. Then the cars of the wives began to arrive, and two ants' cars also drove up, and the ants got out. One was carrying a black bag with the red wings and the knotted snake and the moon on it that meant it was a medical services first responder bag, female division. I was not supposed to witness a birth. That thick red knowledge was for married women and handmaids, and for the ants, of course, so they could teach it to the midwife ants in training. But naturally, I crept halfway up the stairs. The wives were downstairs having a tea party and waiting for the important moment. The handmaids and the designated ants were with Ofkyle. I could hear a groaning sound that was like an animal, and the handmaids chanting, Push, 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 breathe, breathe, breathe. And at intervals, an anguished voice I didn't recognize but it must have been of Kyle's saying, Oh God, oh God! Deep and dark as if it was coming out of a well. Sitting on the stairs, hugging myself, I began to shiver. Then one of the ants came out into the hall and started barking into her computalk. Right now, as fast as you can. She's losing too much blood. There was a scream, and another. One of the ants called down the stairs to the wives, Get in here now! Then there was another siren. A black car. The red wings and the snake, but a tall gold triangle. A real doctor. He almost leapt out of the car and ran up the steps. It was a boy. A healthy son for Paula and Commander Kyle. He was named Mark. But of Kyle died. I sat with the Marthas in the kitchen after the wives and the handmaids and everyone had gone away. The Marthas were eating the leftover party food. The poor girl, Zilla said, to go through all of that for nothing. At least the baby was saved, said Vera. It was one or the other, said Rosa. They had to cut her open. I'm going to bed now, I said. Ofkyle hadn't yet been taken out of our house. She was in her own room, wrapped in a sheet, as I discovered when I went softly up the back stairs. 
I uncovered her face. It was flat white. Her eyebrows were upcurved as if surprised. Her eyes were open, looking at me. I kissed her on the forehead. I won't ever forget you, I said to her. And when I had the power to do so, I searched for her in the bloodline's genealogical archives, and I found her. For me, it was like finding a handprint in a cave. I was here. I existed. I was real. Her original name was Crystal. They had a small funeral for Crystal. We sang two hymns and the legendary Aunt Lydia gave a speech. I looked at her with wonder, as if she was her own picture come to life. She existed, after all. She said that our sister in service, handmaid of Kyle, had made the ultimate sacrifice and had died with noble womanly honor, and she was a shining example to the other handmaids. Aunt Lydia's voice trembled a little as she was saying this. The truth was that they'd cut Crystal open to get the baby out, and they'd killed her by doing that. She hadn't volunteered to die with noble womanly honor or be a shining example, but nobody mentioned that. When he wasn't eating or sleeping or being shown off, Mark passed his time in the kitchen. The Marthas loved to give him his bath and exclaim over his tiny fingers, his tiny toes, and his tiny male organ, out of which he could project a truly astonishing fountain of pee. I was expected to join in the worship, and when I didn't show enough zeal, I was told to stop sulking, because soon enough I would have a baby of my own, and then I would be happy. I doubted that very much. Anita and I sat beside each other in the stadium. To my left was a woman I didn't know, who said she was a lawyer. To the right of Anita was another lawyer. Behind us, four judges. In front of us, four more. They must be sorting us by profession, said Anita. The sun beat down. To pass the time, I berated myself. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I'd believed all that claptrap about life, liberty, democracy, and the rights of the individual I'd soaked up at law school. You pride yourself on being a realist, I told myself. So face the facts. There's been a coup here in the United States, just as in times past in so many other countries. The opposition is led by the educated, so the educated are the first to be eliminated. You are a judge. So you are the educated, like it or not. I did not intend to be eliminated if I could help it. At four o'clock, we were treated to a spectacle. Twenty blindfolded women, all in business attire, were led into the center of the field. Their hands were cuffed in front. A man in a black uniform orated into a microphone about how sinners were always visible to the divine eye. An undertone of assent, like a vibration, came from the guards and attendants, mm, like a motor revving up. God will prevail, 
concluded the speaker. Then the men who had escorted the blindfolded women raised their guns and shot them. The women keeled over. There was a collective groan from all of us who were seated in the bleachers. I heard screams and sobbing. If they were going to kill us all, why this display? Ada wasn't just severe. She was scary. She drove fast. You have to trust me, she said. The same people who set that car bomb could be looking for you right now. My teeth were chattering, though the air was hot and sticky. We stopped in front of a large square-shaped building and went in through the side door. Ada nodded at the man sitting at the small desk there. Elijah, she said, we've got errands. I followed her into a large room where there was a row of beds with women lying down on some of them. What is this place? I said. Sanctacare, the Gilead Refugee Organization. Melanie worked with it, and so did Neil in a different way. Now, let's get some other clothes. We went past all the women, into a back room where there were a couple of racks with hangers. This was where the donations from the clothes sound ended up. Pick something you'd never wear in real life, said Ada. You need to look like a totally different person. I found a black t-shirt with a white skull and a pair of leggings, black with white skulls. Not bad, Ada said. She handed me a lipstick, and I made myself a new red mouth. There, she said. You never know. Our secret is safe with us. What was our secret? That I no longer officially existed? Ada drove me to a big old brownstone mansion that sat on a large scruffy lot with a couple of huge trees. Heavy stone steps led up to the front porch. Inside was a flight of broad stairs, winding upwards. At the top, there was another heavy door. There's a bedroom for you, said Ada, but I had no urge to see it. I fell onto the sofa in the front room. I must have dozed off, because suddenly it was evening, and Ada was turning on the flat screen. I guess that was for my benefit, so I would know she'd been telling the truth. But it was brutal. The wreckage of the clothes hound. The windows shattered, the door gaping open. In front, the shell of Melanie's car. Where's the bathroom? I asked. Ada told me, and I went into it and was sick. When I came back into the room, on the sofa was the man we'd passed when going in through the side door at Sanctacare. His face was like creased leather, and he had a scar up the side of his cheek. He smiled at me, showing white teeth with a molar missing on the left. Ada nodded her chin over at the man. You remember Elijah, from Sanctacare? Friend O'Neill's. He's here to help. Elijah looked directly at me. Yesterday was not your birthday. Yes, it was, I said. The first of May. I turned 16. In reality, you're about four months younger. <laughs> it's on my health card, my birthday. Try again, said Ada to Elijah. Melanie and Neil were not your parents, he said.
Why are you saying that? I know this is distressing for you, said Elijah. Then who were they? I said. No relation. You were placed with them for safekeeping when you were a baby. They were going to tell you on the day that they... Ada trailed off. Then who were they? Neil and Melanie were very valued and experienced members of the... No, I said. My other parents, my... real ones. Are they dead too? They're still alive. And do you know much about Gilead? said Elijah in a tired voice. Of course, we took it in school. That's where you were born, he said. In Gilead. You were smuggled out by your mother in Mayday. They'd risked their lives. Gilead made a big fuss. They wanted you back. Mayday hid you. Like baby Nicole, I said. I wrote an essay about her. Elijah looked straight at me. You are baby Nicole. This afternoon, I had another summons from Commander Judd. I believe he enjoys our little tete-a-tetes for reasons that are complex and perverse. He thinks of me as his handiwork. I am the embodiment of his will. I trust you are well, Aunt Lydia. Flourishing, praise be. And you? I myself am in good health, but I fear my wife is ailing. It weighs upon my soul. I was not surprised. The last time I saw her, Judd's current wife was looking shop-worn. That is sad news, I said. What seems to be the malady? It is not clear, he said. It never is. An affliction of the inner organs. There was a pause while we regarded each other. Soon, I feared, he would again be a widower and in the market for another child bride. Whatever I can do to help, I said. Thank you, Aunt Lydia. But that isn't the reason I asked you here. We have taken a position on the death of the Pearl Girl we lost in Canada. The official Canadian account of the matter is suicide. I am devastated to hear this, I replied. Aunt Adriana was exceptionally courageous. Our own version is that the Canadians are covering up, and the depraved Mayday terrorists killed Aunt Adriana. Though between you and me, we are baffled. Aunt Sally was just around the corner purchasing some eggs. When she returned and discovered the tragedy, she wisely decided that a swift return to Gilead was her best option. Very wisely, I said. Upon her sudden return, a shaken Aunt Sally had come straight to me. Adriana attacked me, and I fought back. It was self-defense, she'd sobbed. A momentary psychotic break, I'd said. You had no choice. I see no reason for anyone else to know about this, do you? Oh, thank you, Aunt Lydia. I'm so sorry it happened. 
Do you have anything else to tell me? Well, you asked us to be on the lookout for baby Nicole. The couple running the clothes hound had a daughter who would be about the right age. That is an interesting speculation, I'd said. You'd intended to send a report via the consulate, instead of waiting to speak directly with me upon return? Well, I thought you should know immediately. Aunt Adriana said it would be premature. She was strongly against it. I insisted that it was important. Indeed, I'd said. It was. But risky. The eyes can be so blunt. They lack finesse. There is always a reason for my instructions, my orders. It is not for the Pearl Girls to take unauthorized initiatives. Oh, I didn't realize I know you meant well. Aunt Sally had started to cry. I did. I really did. Where is the girl in question now? I'd asked. I don't know. Maybe they shouldn't have blown up the clothes hound so soon. I did advise against hastiness. I'd fixed her with my best penetrating gaze. And you have not communicated your suspicions about this potential baby Nicole to anyone else? Only to you, Aunt Lydia, and to Aunt Adriana before she... Let's keep this to ourselves, shall we? I'd said. There need not be a trial. Now, I think you need some rest and recuperation. I'll arrange a stay for you at our lovely Marjorie Kemp retreat house in Walden. You'll be a different woman soon. I did not wish Aunt Sally dead. I simply wished her incoherent. And so it has been. More tearful thanks from Aunt Sally. Don't thank me, I'd said. It is I who should be thanking you. Aunt Adriana did not give her life in vain, Commander Judd was saying. My heart contracted. We've become certain of the means by which information has been exchanged. Via the burglary, we recovered a microdot camera. Microdot? I asked. An old technology. Astonishing, I exclaimed. But it is only one end of the string, the Mayday end. There's a Gilead end. Those who are receiving the microdots here and reciprocating with messages of their own, we have still not identified that individual or individuals. I've asked my colleagues at Ardua Hall to keep their eyes and ears open. We'll outfox Mayday yet, I said, thrusting out my jaw. I like your spirit, Aunt Lydia, he said. The truth shall prevail, I said. I was quivering with what I hoped would pass as righteous indignation. Under his eye, he replied. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.